You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to this last and final episode of Turning to the Mystics, Season 4, where we've been turning to the mystic Guigo II and his book, The Ladder for Monks. Um, This is our final episode for this season and for 2021. It's been a... I'm here with Jim. Hi, (laughs) Hi, Jim. What a great season Mm -hmm. this has been. Yes. I want to say, too, to add that when we pick up again to start the next season, beginning of next year, uh, we return to the English mystics. We'll be going through the cloud of unknowing and Julianne of Norwich. So we end this mystic, take a breather, and start in with a <laughs> So, uh, yeah. That sounds really exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Um, in this final session, we're going to be going through uh, listener questions. And uh, you and I have had a chance to look at um, all the responses that came in. Some are questions, some are compliments for you, Jim, and your uh, teaching and um and certainly uh, the emails give us a sense of that monastery without walls, your vision for a contemplative spiritual community forming around these teachings. So it's been wonderful to read everyone's emails. So thank you for sending them in. Yes, it really. Okay, you ready for the first one, Jim? I am, I am. Okay, this is a question from Gary, and he says, Given the first three seasons of this podcast series, as well as the Centre for Action and Contemplation's Alternative Orthodoxy, inviting us into the journey of descent, I find myself immediately resistant to the ladder of monks. What immediately comes to mind is the illusion of separation, with God being up in heaven and we humans being stuck here on earth. And with more effort and striving on our part, we can climb this ladder of ascent to where it pierces the clouds and reveals heavenly secrets. I respond this way, but all these mystics. Let's say, first of all, that Guigo and all these mystics are assuming that God is infinitely and unexplainably present in and as the gift of our very presence. And Merton says, beating in our very blood, whether we want it to or not, the creation God's self-donating act of creation is perpetual and absolute, and we are the generosity of God and of the earth, the stars. They assume that. Like, that's the, tr- the ultimate truth of our situation. But then they're saying that, and, and it's also true that the whole mystery of God is infinite. It's, it's awe-inspiring. You know, there's that sense of awe or reverence in the presence of the infinite, that is unexplainably present in and as that. There's all that. But then there's also the, the, the sense in which we're experientially exiled from the ever-present divinity of each breath and heartbeat. Like it's far off. We've, we look around like, where is God? And not only that, in, in the midst of the things that happen in life, it's especially hard to find God. And, and hardships and difficulties and traumatizations. And so we know God is there, but like, where art thou? See, And uh, and so that's what they're talking about. The separation is a separation in our heart. You can call it original sin, or Jesus called it blindness. The Buddha called it ignorance. So really they're addressing that perception of estrangement. And then the path is how do we close the gap of that estrangement? So that's what they're referring to. And notice, from the very first step in the ladder, God's already there helping you with it. Because Lexio is hearing God talking to you personally on the very first rung of the ladder of taking in the beauty of this word. And so that, those kind of images, I think, help to correct that perception that there's this hierarchical distance, God's somewhere far off. Mm-hmm. And see, instead, God's nowhere far off, but we're somehow far off from the ever-present mystery of God. And the whole path is how do I close the gap in my heart to find that union that's always there and uh, 
so I think that perspective helps me. Yes. So even before we were to take the first step on any ladder, God's already perfectly present with us and loving us. And yeah, God, and God's already perfectly there as the mystery that you're alive. Yeah. And God's already there by endowing you with the capacity to become aware of the absence. And then in the absence, to be aware of the longing to consummate oneness and gives you the grace to put your foot on the first rung of the ladder. Like God, the whole thing is infused with the gift of God. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, perspectives like that help me to overcome that understandable tendency to, to be worried about some far-off God. Yeah. In terms of thinking about Lexio um, into, and, and this practice, you could think about it as a spiral spiraling down into God or a spiral spiraling around into God. It's, it's, he, he uses the ladder as a particular example because he's relating it to the scripture narrative, is that? Yeah, yeah. let's say what the mystics are doing, they're searching for a language mm-hmm. that allows us to speak of such things. And there are temporal metaphors about time and eternity, but there's spatial metaphors. These are spatial metaphors. And one is certainly an ascent, ascending like Jesus in the ascension. Uh, Thomas Merton once said at the monastery where after the resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven, like going up into heaven. And he he said, but how does the second person of the Trinity go to the first person of the Trinity? It it was for our sake. He didn't go anywhere. (laughs) And so there is that ascent metaphor, mm-hmm. but there's also the descent, mm-hmm. see? And uh, I mentioned this in an earlier talk, Jacques Maritain, the Thomistic philosopher, on degrees of knowledge and Aquinas and so on, he says, he says the mind in conceptual thought moves in a horizontal passage uh, through time, one plus one plus one plus one equals, and seeks to rest in an answer. Mm-hmm. He said, but in the presence of mystery, it's different. In the presence of mystery, the mind holds still in a state of awe and descends, he says, as on a hidden, on a, on a hidden axis of abyss-like love, as on a spiral staircase mm. going down. And every time around, you swing around to a deeper awareness. So in the liturgical year, every year we come around to a deeper sense of the mystery of Christ's birth, the mystery of Christ's life. Christ's life. You know, and 80 years later, you cross over, <laughs> you kind of go, wow, that was a good trip. And, but likewise, in our meditation, we go down and down, like deeper, deeper, deeper. Mm-hmm. And as Eckhart said, means to the ground, mm-hmm. going down into the ground. But there's also the, the, the ascent, and they're the same. Mm-hmm. You know, the, they're the inverse poetic metaphors of this incarnate infinity that we're infinitely realizing. That's really helpful. And Guigo would be just as comfortable with the downward spiral as the upward ladder. He, he would because there's a lot of passages in Guigo in this little letter where he talks about the depths of humility. Mm-hmm. And a matter of fact, it's to the extent we descend into humility that we're able to ascend into the heights. The lower we go, the higher we go. A St. Benedict in his rule has a whole chapter uh, on um, the, uh, the, 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 the steps to God, as, as steps of humility of humility, as degrees of humility or degrees of enlightenment Mm -hmm. to the deifying light. And so that's the paradox. The more humble we come in the deep descent, the more lofty, like the lofty depths of God are realized in our heart. Mm -hmm. You know, those kind of paradoxical things. That's beautiful. That's really helpful to see that. And just going back to your original statement, we're not really moving anywhere. We're just, it's just an, a greater awareness of something that's always happening. Yeah, we're, we're like, like T.S. Eliot, we come around for the first time, you know, and, and recognize it for the first time. So it isn't that we're going anywhere in the ultimate sense as we're established infinitely in the infinite love of God. There's nowhere to go. But we're certainly going somewhere in the transformative deepening of the journey, homo viator, mm. this deepening journey into ever deeper realizations of the one thing that's always there, which is a mystery of love, really, or silence and beauty, all these things. Beautiful. Thank you. So, Jim, just building on that, there is a question from Mary Ann, and she refers to the episode where I practiced the Lexio with you and I was kind of 
reflecting on how do I start? Where do I begin? What's the ultimate truth? So she calls it, what, what is my basic truth? How do I get the who right and embody my identity that lies in the fact that I'm that we are loved by God? What is my basic truth? Yes. You know, my sense is this, um, uh, like what's the basic truth? Like how do I start? I, I, my sense of this, what helps me to see it, is where we start by renewing our sincerity. The thing about Merton saying we begin when we pray that we belong to God. So it's our sincerity when we sit in prayer and meditation, like here I am, Lord. You know, take me, break me, take me to yourself. So it's the sincerity of the desire. Now that desire may be filled with misconceptions, but God uh, connects the dots for us, mm. see, and and comes to us and illumines and guides us. So I, I think it's sustained sincerity, um, uh, embodied in the willingness to keep opening ourselves, the sustained attentiveness infused with love, the, the transformation of our attitudes in that love, those transform attitudes translating into action like how we treat ourselves, others, and the earth. But I would say that we always keep turning back to the beginning point. of It's like in a love relationship. Where do you start when you lose your way? You start by uh, the willingness to start again by renewed sincerity mm-hmm. with each other. And love starts there. Yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. I think uh, for me, when I was reflecting on that too, it's like you can get so caught up in... Um, the pace of life and we talked about this like here I am ready to do my practice and so it it is that sense of even finding my way into my own body and pausing for a moment to to tap into that sincerity. Exactly you know in a consumer mentality and everything's moving Mm -hmm. like that okay sometimes I say on my retreat you know isn't like you get a bumper sticker, mystical union or bust. <laughs> um, you know, and, uh, or you go to sit in prayer and say, I've been at this for three weeks now, nothing's happening. You know, I want to go watch television. It's not like that. As we slow down, but notice something in the simplicity of the sincerity of our practice over time, we see subtle shifts in realizations and quickenings and sensitivities and sensibilities that were uh, unavailable to us when we first started. And we're on a learning curve. You know, God will continue to deepen this through time. So in one sense, it's, it's glacial. It moves very slow. But it moves very slow with a kind of sovereignty or a kind of a depth-like sustaining presence through time. Like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. So there uh, were a couple of questions um, specifically relating to using scripture for the Lexio. So there's one um, from Christina Flanagan uh, who says, um, it, it became clear to me that Lexio is so personally difficult because of the visceral rejection of most Bible verses. Are there other ways to access the guidance of the heart in Christian Lexio? And there's another one, saying that um, James suggests that we read the Bible and reflect on this text to experience God's word. While I I don't refute this, I wonder if it is sufficient or okay to reflect on other writings as a practice, such as Father Richard Raw's daily meditations. So there's those two asking about scripture, alternatives to scripture because of of bad experiences with scripture. And then um, we also have a voicemail kind of, in the opposite direction, asking about ways we might look at Scripture differently. Do we want to hear the voicemail now? Yeah. Hi, Jim and Kirsten. I'm uh, sending you a voicemail message from Tanzania in East Africa, where I'm living as a priest and hermit. Here is my question. You give the example of um, Guigo II's reading of the story of Jacob's Ladder. And every time I hear you do an interpretation of scriptures, it's so profound and, and again, so mystical. For example, the insight about the angels. My question is, do you know of anywhere where mystical readings of scripture have been compiled centrally? Or alternatively, 
Are there any particular sources that you would point to, maybe particular mystics or particular mo- books by mystics that are particularly rich, having, you know, four or five or ten um, readings of different pericopes of scripture using a very mystical lens? Um, that's something that we find very valuable and I think would go uh, so well with what we've been getting from Guigo II about Lexio Divina and the point that you made about the use of scripture. Thanks so much for what you're doing. Um, it's extremely valuable to me, and I feel very blessed by your work as a, as a mystical teacher, helping us to access these mystics um, using modern language and modern psychology. God bless. Thanks again. This is, this is a very international question because uh, one of the questions I read was from Jennifer in Sydney, Australia, and then we've got a priest and a hermit in Tanzania and then Christina Flanagan, who sounds very Irish. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And there's some from the UK. Yeah, there are people all over. Yes, it's yeah, nice. amazing. It's lovely. It's, it's very nice. Yeah. It is. Let's start first with his question. Mm-hmm. Scripture. And then we'll flip it over and look at the other side on addressing problems with Scripture. Um, yes, you know, first of all, um, Let's say there's this sense of Scripture as God's self-revelation to us, revealed to us. And so what we're looking for, what we find in the mystics, is we find in the Scriptures being intimately encountered by God in Scripture. So the issue is, how did the mystics read Scripture? Were the monks chanting the Psalms, all over and over chant the Psalm, all, you know, just the chanting of the, the rhythmic of the chanting of the Psalms and the liturgical year, the readings from Scripture. So how could we find um, commentaries on that? I have a few thoughts on this. You know, first of all, um, I think that uh, we, we learn it when we open the Scriptures with childlike sincerity knowing it is and turning towards it insofar as it's given to us to do so. But how do we take that deeper mystically? Here's some thoughts. Here's some thoughts. One, for example, if you take St. John of the Cross, he's so good this way because he keeps quoting scripture all the time. So I say if you take the collected works of John of the Cross, he sent him on Carmel, the dark night, spiritual canticle, living flame of love. And with a marker, you'd uh, highlight in red every Bible quote. And then in yellow, commentary. You go through all the works and fan it. It's scripture commentary. So by studying John of the Cross, you could see how the mystic John of the Cross read scripture. You could also see in the sermons of Eckhart, he always starts with the scripture quote. See, a lot of them are sermons, because some to the nuns at Strasbourg and other talk. And you could see how this mystic Eckhart read scripture. So that's one way. That's one way that mixes, we kind of pick that up. Oh, I could do that. Like, I could, I could approach it this way. The, the way I put it sometimes to myself is that, is to see that, that, that to, to understand in our heart anything that Jesus says is like falling off a cliff. See? Because uh, we'll never, 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 never get to the bottom of the bottomless abyss of love that's welling up in every word that Jesus says. But to approach Jesus' words out of opinion, to approach Jesus' words out of grasping, everything he says is like a wall of sheer granite. We can't get through. And so the thing is to be taken by Jesus the way the author of the gospel was taken by Jesus and find in the words and so on. Next, there's the, the mystics themselves and the, uh, the other mystics too on how they read scripture so we can learn to follow suit with that. Then there's another way, is to find an in-depth commentary on the mystics. For example, when we get to Meister Eckhart, Reiner Sherman on Wandering Joy, you see these very in-depth understandings of Scripture, and then how he wove that in with the philosophical theology of Plotinus and Augustine and Bonaventure and Aquinas and Aristotle. You get weaving, it always has its roots in this mystical understanding of Scripture. And so to find commentaries on the mystics, you'll find this to be always part of those commentaries. And so I find things like that are helpful mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah. 
And, uh, and to take a word of scripture as a mantra, like we do the readings where you say, you know, fear not, I'm with you always. And so to breathe that, like to exhale that, we're getting close to mystical scripture in the mantra-like quality that every time you say it, the descent gets deeper, the heights get higher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so there's that, mm-hmm. I, I would say there's that. The next insofar as it's problematic to read scripture because of the history with scripture. Mm-hmm. You've been hurt by dogmatic things and scripture's been used in all kinds of ways. So what I say always with all of this, what helps, do it. What doesn't help, don't do it. If it doesn't help to do it, don't read Scripture. Mm-hmm. You know? Because really, notice, our main lexio is not Scripture. It's the sayings of the mystics. I keep turning to Scripture because they turned, because I'm trying to be faithful to the lineage. Yeah. But notice we're being faithful to it by listening to the mystic's voice, who is transformed in it. And we're li- it's the mystic's voice that becomes our, like the, the things that they say, the depth of the things they say. And, uh, and that becomes our lexio. So we can listen to the thing, but not ourselves necessarily, because it doesn't work for us. Don't do it. Yeah. There's, a, there's even a, a deeper step. Zen Master Dogen, you know, find that person whose words awaken your heart with a desire for the great way, then forget everything else. So sometimes it, it's a mystic that's not even in our own tradition. It's in the Bhagavad Gita, when the sutras of the Buddha were the sayings of Rumi, and the mm-hmm. Sufi masters, the Kabbalistic masters, because you can feel the resonance of the divinity. And sometimes we can approach it that way. Also, a, a poet or in an art museum where the artist is a visual mystic. So we're always at being, we're turning towards what works, that touches us and draws us like that and go with that because our perceptions on this journey are constantly changing Mm -hmm. things that are obstacles right now five years from now might not be obstacles at all and what that's what counts is i think staying faithful to where we are the crest of the wave yeah as god's transforming us so interiorly and let it stay open like trust ourselves Be, be true to ourselves Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Jim, can you explain what happens? Um, this is Jennifer from Sydney, and she says, um, when you've come from an evangelical background, which is so word-heavy and often uses specific Bible texts to justify a particular view, I found it hard to read afresh. Well, what's going on there? Is it just like it's so embedded in a negative context? or? I want to echo Richard Rohr here on this one. See, in a way, the Protestant Reformation came about as as much as it did to the Enlightenment, turning to reason, as it did with the badly needed reform of the Roman Church, selling indulgences and pretty horrible, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a crazy lot, mm-hmm. Catholic Church. And, um, uh, and what was reason? See, so when Luther opened the Bible, found God's Word, we might say for the very first time he was reading it outside of the liturgical, sacramental, contemplative, mystical, mythic ethos of God's word as reverberations of these poetic metaphors, this imagery, this which is how the desert fathers and mothers and the mystics read scripture. And he turned to the verse as if it were a fact. Mm. And you can flip back and have proof texts, flip back and forth proving as a theoretical model. And then the Catholic Church, because it was also under the influence, it joined right in with the Counter-Reformation. Oh yeah, we have our proof text too, you know. Mm-hmm. And the battle was on. Because <laughs> I said, no, may God sit on a stone somewhere and weep. You know, it's like people getting in violent arguments over the meaning of love and sort of hitting each other. Yes, yeah. Because you know, they don't agree, it's so crazy. Yes. And it's really, so how are we freed from the ideological living? But you'll you'll also find in those Protestant traditions, what we're really talking about is holiness. And you can tell in certain ministers, certain preachers, they're really men and women of God. Mm-hmm. And they don't do that at all. I went to Fuller, which is an evangelical seminary. And um, you, you found some of that there. Mm-hmm. Students would come, because they knew I was Catholic. And they would come, they were real sincere. They would say, I used to be Catholic till I became a Christian. 
I would think, what am I, your job liver? What's going on? <laughs> they meant it. You know, that's how they were, you know. Yes. You also found there really deeply spiritual people grounded in the truth of Scripture, you know, as pathways of prayer to God. And likewise, you'll find the same thing in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. You have Catholic fundamentalism. Yeah. Flipping back and forth. And, and so this, we're kind of like Thomas Merton saying, a lot of Catholics are losing their faith. And they're losing it in church mm. because the church doesn't teach its own mystical lineage, mm. which is the living school, which are these podcasts. And so the soul knows where it needs to go to find what it needs to find. And so admittedly, all that's there. But what's also there, if we look a little deeper, is what we're looking for here. And finding it here, then you can see it showing up in the homily of someone where you can tell they're speaking out of this prayerful place. Yes. And that's, I think that's what counts. Yeah, that's so helpful, Jim. I do think, too, in, in our society, we're so um, uh, conditioned to be using our rational mind. And so yes. it's, it's hard to, turn, if you've been trained that way with Scripture as well, it's really hard to switch that off. So I love yeah. that idea of maybe start with a poet, maybe start with an, you know, maybe exactly. start with something um, and find your way back to Scripture if you if you meant to at a later time. Yeah, and by the way, I think in listening to these podcasts, we're really the echoes of the mystic voice mm -hmm. is liberating us from the claustrophobic rationalism. Yes, because there's a certain cadence of the death and the beauty that uh, there are words that embody what the mind can't grasp, but which can be realized. And there's a language of that. And maybe that's one way of understanding the pedagogy of these mystics. In order to follow them, you have to leave behind that thing and move with the, the beauty and, you know, kind of let it have its way with you. It'd be transformed. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Wonderful. Uh, this is a question from Laura on the Lexio. Is the unitive experience we seek with Lexio Divina to be in love with God it probably sounds like a silly question, but the example was so evocative, startling actually. It made me relook at agape love, mind, heart, soul, and just wonder if I should stop separating the definitions of love. I wonder if these Sunday school definitions of love actually keep me in exile, the way you have put it sometimes, from knowing God. Yeah. Let's say this in these mystic ways. Um we're really talking about how the spirit is embodied in and transcends knowing and loving. And therefore, when we get to Meister Eckhart, we'll see the path of knowing, which is infused with love. And Meister Eckhart is knowing is much closer, therefore, to Buddhism as knowing. But with these nuptial mystics that we're reading here, it's a love language. It is. And um, and that's why they're much more closer to the Sufi, the six, or or to um, Bhakti Yoga, these love paths that we find in other traditions. So in love, here's how I see it. Here's what me to see it. I think it's so like this. See, they 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 ask Jesus in the Gospels, um, what is the greatest commandment? That is out of all these beautiful things that you say about God and about God's presence, what is the one thing that if we were ground our heart in that, everything else would fall into place? That's a great question to ask a teacher. You know. And notice, he didn't say a doctrine. He didn't list things to believe. He said, he said here's what the greatest commandment is, is to love God. That is, and since God is love, the scripture says, see, is to learn from the infinite love of God how to be in love with the infinite love that's infinitely in love with you. And in the mutual self-donation and love, everything falls into place. Because love alone is the true substance. Love alone is the reality. And the path is all things considered. Um, how can I learn to live by love? For myself, my body, my mind, my spouse, my child, my neighbor, my the animal, the earth, to live by love. And the second follows from it, to love your neighbor as yourself, because we're all siblings of love. And so this is the difference. See, we're saved by faith, 
which is this obscure certainty of love in our heart. We're not saved by belief. See the creed, I believe in God, the Father of my. Some people are so creed heavy, they can't get to the faith. See? But if you're grounded in this love knowledge of faith, it allows us to read the creed as metaphors of love. It's like two people deeply in love with each other, and one says to the other, I love you. The other one doesn't say, define your terms. <laughs> You know, you got a good book I could read on that. I'd really appreciate understanding that, but hopefully with footnotes. This is like that. It isn't that there aren't good books on love. Mm -hmm. There are some fine books on love. But really, it's a living knowledge that in, then infuses in everything they say lovingly to each other, which is their knowledge in love. See, is they're putting language to the love. And um, so we might say that all the scripture is that. Or some people would prefer the, all the words of the mystics are that. Because you can tell it's love language, you know. Mm -hmm. Building on that sense of um, love in, in the Lexio practice, Deborah Fetterly just asked about um, sometimes in meditation my experience with the divine is so intense, I struggle with the feeling of overwhelm. And she, she, she's kind of asking about the, that sense of overwhelm. What is emo, like what what big emotions in the in the practice? How to handle those sorts of things? Yes, yes. You know when we read the mystics, so this is really true. There's some a lot of us who are having trouble finding the experience of God. One person said in a course, I don't know if I've ever had that experience. We can address that later if we want. Important question. Let's do actually do that mm. next. Okay, I great. never had this experience. But sometimes what happens, Saint Teresa talks about this a lot in the Sixth Mansion, is it is the opposite. Is you're kind of overwhelmed by it. See, you're kind of like being overtaken by it. This can happen to people. See, and so what I think is this. What I think is this is this is very personal. I contemplate the spiritual direction. At one level. Uh, pace yourself by deliberately backing away. You know, take a walk and make a cup of tea and uh, fold the laundry or do something. And then when you come back, kind of ease into it, see, see, and see where it goes. Also, on purpose, try to approach it at somewhat of a distance, like just reflecting upon it or journaling something more diffused. See? And then as you lean into it again, the other way to do it, is to give in to it. See, it's just to give in to it because it raises a deep question. By the way, you need to be very careful with this because there's also the risk of psychotic states. Mm -hmm. You can be risk, you know, you need to be, when someone's tapped into the power of this like this, you need to honor it and pace it and put safety first because nothing real having to do with God happens without safety. See? And so we're kind of pacing ourselves, getting guidance and surrender to that. And for some people, this is their way. What tends to happen is for some, what tends to happen after a time, sometimes it's years, it mellows out. Not because it's gone away, but because this love that was so intense has transformed you into itself. And the you that resisted it was burned away. St. John of the Cross is a log burning in a fireplace. It protested for sputters and smokes. He said, but after a while, it just glows. And you can't just tell the log from the fire. And so it comes to a certain quietness of a kind of diffused oneness like this. And there's another way to look at it, too, about backing away. There's this delightful realization it's already too late. See, you're already... <laughs> You know, it goes as it goes. It goes. But I, I would answer that for his first safety. You keep pacing yourself how to manage the unmanageable. Like this. Journal it, see where it goes, understand it, work with it. And um, just hand it over to God. Ask God to help you with this. And um, be like that. It's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing contemplative spiritual direction question, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would sort of talk to somebody, you know, the Camaldolese are an order of hermits, St. Romuald, and they have a community up here, Big Sur, right here. And I once talked to someone who's a member of the community there, and I was so struck, because this is how I experienced it at Gethsemane, too, in silence. For the first time, he was in the cell, 
It was just a simple little cot, a table and a chair and a window, an utter silence. And in the poverty of that nothingness, it was the most profound experience of God. You know what I mean? Like yes, yeah. The infinity of the nothingness. Like the, and sometimes you can be called to that, you know, like that. I think the mystics were called to it. And then they were called to share with us what happened to them there. Because they know how hard it is to realize such talk actually pertains to you. Like, how do we find trustworthy guidance in these different modalities of this path? Mm-hmm. And Jim, just coming back to the the other, the flip side of that question, which was uh, a question from Gary, who finds it hard to tap into this sense of nuptial love um, when he puts himself in relationship to God the Father and Jesus, that that, that kind of nuptial love isn't what, he, ca- he can't yeah. find it. He's not tapping into that. <clears throat> yeah, he, all this beautiful language of this oneness, he doesn't know if he's ever experienced it. Mm-hmm. I, I have two thoughts on this. One is I think I gave this in the beginning session with Merton. The image I use is um, that of realizing that um, let's say that in a certain sense there really are gradients of the realization of this love. So there's that first subtle whisper of it. You can get stronger, 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 stronger. And let's say there's a certain kind of mystical fulfillment, which is really beyond the veil of death, which the mystics experience. And so we might say, I don't know if I've ever experienced that effulgence, like that fullness of this. But here's the thing. You know, in, in the Tao Te Ching, it says the Tao... It's like water. It seeks the lowest place to give life to all that lives. It's to know the fullness of infinity is infinitely giving the infinity itself away, whole and complete, in and as the least taste of it. And so to know that even the simplest lexio moment, that's the simplest moment of receiving a word of beauty and knowing that it somehow echoes God's voice, that is the fullness. Mm-hmm. It's really not measured in terms of the intensity of realization. It's measured in terms of the sincerity of responding to the delicacy of the way. Mm-hmm. And fidelity to that, I think, is holiness. Yeah. And then the gradients of that are, and Teresa of Avila says this too, the interior castle. When she starts the fourth mansion, she starts the mystical states. And she says, for some people, this is their charism. But there are some people in the first three mansions who never have these at all, and they're much holier than people that are having all these experiences. Mm -hmm. And then someone said, well, that's true. Why are you telling us about it at such great length? She says, because maybe you're one of the people to whom these things are happening. And how to receive guidance and how to follow this path. And do you think, Jim, when I read Gary's question as well, there's something about like the, the metaphor, the nuptial metaphor is not working for him. So it's, it's like when you, you have that find your teacher and, and learn from them, it, yes. it's also finding the metaphor that, that yes. works for you because they're all just metaphors, aren't they? So romantic love might not be the right metaphor. No, no, no exactly right. And, and so, for example, when we did thing on Merton, remember, so maybe like he gives a litany. Yeah. Of, of realms. Yes. So out turning to see a flock of birds descending, uh, where the earth is the metaphor. St. John of the Cross says, in the he says, in the beginning, we can be seduced by the beauty of the world through possessiveness of heart. We get a little deeper in walking through the mountains and so on. He says, we realize the beloved has passed this way in haste. We see tracings mm-hmm. in the flowers and so on. And he says, you go deeper still. He said, my beloved is the mountains. And uh, so sometimes it's nature. Sometimes it's it's intimacy with another person, nuptial. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's parenting. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's solitude, like a solitary wanderer. Sometimes it's a person radicalizing the poetic voice Mm -hmm. and the art. Sometimes it's the radicality of having no path at all. You just water the plants and sit on the porch and have soup. <laughs> There's something unbearably beautiful about it all that has no name. So I think that's what matters. Find where the resonance yes. is and just stay open to what else might happen in the future. And, I, and learning to trust that. 
I was actually reading um, some texts from Merton about pilgrimage and how like yeah. an external pilgrimage can help you find the internal pilgrimage to God. And so some people, they do the, the Camel de Lis Trail and, you know, that's the place they find a holy, deep they experience. Yeah. Or let's put it another way too. So another metaphor, pilgrimage. Our whole life on this earth is a pilgrimage. You so mysteriously appeared on the earthly plane, like God exhaled you onto this earthly plane. And this whole journey you're on, it has brought you up to this very moment. You're even capable of being concerned about these things. Mm -hmm. Has it not been a, a winding path, a mysterious pilgrimage, see, not of your own making? So your own life understood in these terms is this long arc with unforeseeability that lies ahead mm -hmm. into the moment of your death and you'll disappear as mysteriously as you appeared, as you, it comes full circle back into God again. And so it's looking at life itself as the pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just uh, looking at this a little deeper around um, the, the ideas or metaphors we have, there, there was a couple of questions about God, you know, the image of God, and that um, there was one question about, I, I, I really struggle with my image of God as a child. This image was very much a picture of an old man with a white beard standing on a cloud with light shining all around him. And, yeah, so how do we understand the image of God and how it uh, supports us on, on our path? Yes. Uh, you know, I've, seen, I've been thinking lately, I have this idea of writing different things. But I was writing a little book called Theoretical Considerations. So it'd be like God, the soul, the self, time, eternity, death. You know, what has been, and so with God, it's like the names of God, meditating on. So let me just run down and list it. And they're all true, but, we, we, but neither, but all of them open out onto all the others. Mm -hmm. And so, so we go down. And this gets also into the masculine and the feminine mm -hmm. and patriarchal culture. And so, I'm, so let me just run down briefly. We can't go into all this here, but is you know for the first we might say the first is a sense of God that has no name. See, Meister Eckhart says an impartable stillness, a desert, a void, see, and uh, infinite emptiness without a name. So there's that. It's the God that has no name, see, hidden. And uh, then there's the God who's infinitely hidden, infinitely manifested as divine relations of knowledge and love. I'm going to say in the Christian tradition, as the Trinity. See? So intimacy is the first manifestation of the unmanifested presence of God. Bellatio, the stillness, Eckhart says, is boiling up as relatedness, as divine relations, as subsisting relations. Not three individuals but subsisting relations of knowledge and love manifesting emptiness. And we can reflect on that. God is word, God is infinite wisdom, God is love, God is one. Then there's the God, Ebolatio, Eckhart says, this infinite, this infinite nothingness, this infinite nothingness manifesting itself as divine relations, the Bellatio, the activity of the infinite stillness. And then it boils over as you and me. The universe and of all things is the overflow of God. See? And so the whole universe is the overflow of God and it's nothingness without God. So you and I are the overflow of God and the nothingness without God. So there's that, Theoria Physica, the contemplation of the divinity of the physical world, the tree, the stone, the leaf, the night, and so on, the divinity of earth. Okay. Next. Although this is true of all things, rerum natura, the divinity of all things, is true of human, and that we're, we're persons created by God and the uncreated persons of the Trinity with the capacity to realize this, which is religious experience. So we're quickened, not just human nature with the gift of reason, which is culture and history and all of that, but then there's the name of God as the one who names us, as the one who's capable of awakening to this and seeing it. And then, because love is never imposed and always offered, love is the infinite love 
that in an act of infinite freedom gives us the gift to infinitely choose to give ourselves in love to the love that gives itself to us. And so by going back and forth through these names, and the trouble is we get stuck in one of them, and we get stuck in any of them in which we somehow pin it down. You know, I mean, it's just the, and then it all, it all freeze frames, doesn't move. But if it's a constantly fluctuating pattern where all these are understood in their relatedness to each other and God's infinitely more besides, mm-hmm. see, I think that allows us to use God in that sense. Yes. It's like a metaphor. And it's how the mystics use God. It's how Jesus, Abba, for him. And the, and the male and the female, I think, is the patriarchal nature of uh, culture itself. We're, we're actually in a new epoch of growing out of that androgynous language and male and female. It's a whole like sexual orientation. We're in a new phase, really, of that. But always through history, it, it was patriarchal by men. And, uh, and therefore, uh, Jesus, like I, I ever said this, you know, the way we see things now, God could have saved us so much trouble if God just would have created Jesus as a woman. Yes. Think of the grief it would have spared us from. <laughs> and when Jesus chose the 12, why not make six of them women? Yes. And like, what were you thinking? <laughs> you know, like Abba. Yeah. But Jesus, when he said Abba, and, we, and the patriarchal society grabs hold of it and institutionalizes it as a patriarchal hierarchical culture. Yes. See? And with the power and... And so on. So the mystics helped dismantle that, mm-hmm. really. They helped diffuse that and love this Jesus, God as servant, God as God as mother, mm-hmm. really. Haga Sophia and Julian and so on. And, um, and and so that's that's how we're to see it. Yes. See? And uh, so we're to demythologize hierarchical, patriarchal notions of the ideologies of power, which the church is sin in abundance it's, it's emerging out of it yes there's a long way to go and then each of us has to emerge out of it so me as a man i'm to cherish the gift of being a man mm-hmm. because god's the infinity of masculinity mm-hmm. you're a woman you're to cherish being going because god's the infinity of femininity mm-hmm. see and the union of man and woman is a symbol of the union with god with us which are these nuptial mystics mm-hmm. So those are some perspectives just to consider. Yeah. Uh, if, if you're so drawn to, like carefully reflect and meditate on these mm-hmm. and kind of see how they move back and forth with each other. That's really helpful, Jim. And a very bro- offers a very broad insight and palette of, of metaphors yeah. and ways of finding God. Yeah. Um, Michael asks... Uh, by, by the way, sometimes I've thought, what if you go to see God? And you're so shocked because she's wearing a turban. You go, oh, <laughs> like, oh. like wrong hallway. Like, what's going on? <laughs> so anyway, God's great surprise. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Another question. Well, just um, when Michael also asked a question about God, um, and he's saying that mystics and spiritual practitioners refer to a God that he doesn't comprehend. Um, God is as uh, active, listening, concerned, supportive. So just with all those uh, senses of God that you have, where does the sense of love or beauty or truth or goodness, like is, is that the ground of all these ways yeah, of yeah, yes, experiencing I, yeah, God? Yes, yeah, apply yeah, yeah, what we just said to this. By the way, this is where I think we should follow what's been given to us. So to see God as presence, like a vast, silent, abyss-like island presence, is itself a gift, the via negativa, you know, the, the, and the depth of it, the depth of it like that. And then stay with that. See? Stay with that and be present to that and walk with that and be with that. The other side of it is, is that this God who is this presence, my, Meister Eckhart says, is pregnant with God. Mm. The Trinity is pregnant with all of us. In the very activity, it is the reality of you wondering about such things. Mm. And by the way, is the activity then, it's not found in God, if if it helps to see it this way, it's found in your being invited to respond to that, Mm. which is activity. Yes. It's the activity, and you're to respond to it, in a sense, by merging into the infinite nothingness of God. 
through humility, through poverty, through silence. So there's a strange interplay mm -hmm. between contemplatively understood. So T.S. Eliot says in Four Quartets, the stillness, but don't call it fixity. See, it's not frozen. Mm -hmm. you know, it's infinitely dynamic stillness. And we understand this reciprocity in different ways. Mm -hmm. And just to sit with the mystery of it and be true to what helps you at this present moment and what gets in the way, don't worry about it. Yes. Did, you know? Reading or hearing you teach on Meister Eckhart really helped me because... Uh, of that sense of no matter what it is, at the at the at the bottom of it is generosity. So it's no matter what uh, modality I find God in, at the bottom of it is uh, or the ground of it is is a sense of generosity. Yeah, that lies in the, yeah. sorry, that 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 this infinite ground. See that if we think of God as generosity, mm -hmm. we are the generosity of yes. God. And since the generosity of the infinite is infinite, see, see, and it's that generosity that's the overflowing generosity of the stillness of the presence, and to see it as, and also count your blessings. You know, look at the generosity of God. Mm -hmm. The sun's moving across the sky, and you know, the, just the blessings of being alive. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can't take your next breath without God. Your next breath is God's generosity. And so to start seeing everything that way, you know, it's a very, it's a, very, it's a gift to see that. Yes. Um, have you had some construction start next door or something? Yeah, <laughs> just a little bit in could, the background. Could hear it it's, coming in with the, when yeah, we're trying to talk a, about stillness and silence, in comes the... <laughs> it, right on schedule. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a bleep floor. It's a, they're, they're always... Working on buildings or on, you know, someone's building a porch or something. <laughs> anyway, it's in the background. This is the contemplative life in the midst of the world right here. Yes. Jim, yeah. just uh, building on, on what we were just talking about, there's, there's a question from Linda about, um, uh, I'm wondering if you might have insight around the connectedness of awakened consciousness with the rise of deconstruction, especially with Western Christianity. This is kind of building on what you were saying about the patriarchal nature of Christianity coming coming into a new epoch and being undone. Yes. Yeah. So is she, and her question is: um, is a kind of disorder needed uh, to awaken to see a deeper and broader, more expansive mystical life? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You know, this whole movement of postmodernism mm -hmm. or deconstructionism, in other words, in its radical form, is to see that all these ideas really all theoretical ideas of God or the human being, are all constructed. You know, they're all constructions. And so deconstructionism is deconstructing and just seeing everything as, you know, coming, what's that bring us to? What's that to live? And so, what we, and Ken Wilber puts it this way too, is that there's a kind of a relative deconstructionism in that it's very good to deconstruct the opaqueness of the absoluteness of these definitions, which is fundamentalism. But to see that they're, they're, they're kind of, uh, these constructions are kind of translucent and provide a way of speaking of ineffable things. So as we see them as poetic or metaphorical or translucent, like the words of the love letter, they're, they're all, then it allows us to appreciate because it gives us a language with which to move around and, and speak about the uh, collective wisdom of, of words that echoes. But the true theologian is the one who prays. And so, but the prayer is expressing not a system, you know, it's a system. Uh, we all need a certain pattern. See, even the, even the language we're using right now, we're depending on the subtlety of systems of thought which are expressions of an awareness that transcends systems. When you think about it, the mystical experience transcends system because it's God. But then there's a kind of language that allows us to articulate the awareness that transcends systems and themselves become a subtle system. The problem is the seduction of empire. Instead of leaving them subtle, like poetic invitations, we turn them into fixed ideas. Or let me pin this down. Let me pin this down, and and so anyway, that's 
the epistemology of all this. Yeah, the, the, um, the empire does it, but also our ego likes to do it too because we, we like to feel like we know we've got it, we're, we've, yes. we've made it. Yeah, and, uh, yeah mystical empire. Yeah, inside of ourselves and, and in the world. Inside of yeah. ourselves, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one guy was seeing me once for therapy. He was a real scholar in a classical work. He was a real brilliant guy. And I, but he seemed so definitive about everything. And I didn't say this to him because he was sincere. That was his way. But I, I told him, you know, if you, if you ever lose your faith, call me. We'll talk. You know, you know he was oh, so yeah. stridently clear. Yeah. <laughs> Thomas Aquinas, toward the end of his life, you know, that lovely mm-hmm. book by Joseph Pieper, The Silence of St. Thomas. And he had this mystical experience. And he said, compared to what I've seen, the Summa Theologica is straw. Yeah. And Jilson said, of that straw, Europe was to make its bed. But it, uh, but uh, Thomas Aquinas was was a mystical scholar. Yeah. See, and you see the mysticism shining through the eloquence of his theology. Same with Augustine. So we're all trying to this balance of finding a words yes. and balances that are modalities like poetic modalities and configurations of the presence of God. Which are really just trying to help each one of us find it in our own experience. And to share it. We want to say it. We want to share it with This is what we're doing right now. Yes. See, we're participating in the gift of sharing it with each other. But our language here has a certain quality to it. So I have a question about that uh, from Dave um, and wonders if dopamine is a part of that language. <laughs> He's asking yeah. if dopamine plays a role in our desire for union with God and can we become unhealthily uh, addicted to seeking another moment of oneness? Let's say, first of all, um, there's always the physiology of consciousness. Like Dan Siegel says, you know, the, the mind is not in the brain. You cut the brain open, you won't find the mind in there. Uh, but the brain is in the mind because we think about the brain. But what's also true is that the mind, which we're doing right now, mind, which is incorporeal, there's always the physiology of mind, which is the mystery of dementia, which is the mystery of head trauma, which is the mystery of all the variables of measurable intelligence. There's all of that. Another thing that's in the brain are neurotransmitters that transmit pleasure. And therefore, there's a certain pleasure in consolations certain pleasure in, it comes in quickenings. And we can get addicted, we can become addictively bonded to the pleasure that comes. See, this is why we're, we can't wait until our next one. You know, we're kind of like, end up bringing. so the idea is that if that pleasure washes over us to acknowledge it, but to know it's the physiological overflow of a love that's infinitely beyond it and not to turn and try to seize upon it. Because if you do, the flow stops. So you have to let it wash over you, or you have to let it have its way with you. You have to do that, like the surrender of love, but not turn to try to have it or hold on to it. And not to be afraid of it either, because it's the loss of control. You know, it's kind of surrendered over to being carried by a love. And so there's, there's, there's also, there's, that physiology is always there, and the risk of being addicted to it, being afraid of it, whatever. But there's something else that's true about it. Our traditions of using hallucinogenic uh, things that create these mystical experiences. And I would think when they're used traditionally in the lineages in which they're used, peyote and so on, under the guidance of someone, it's very similar to the sweat lodge. It's very similar to the Zen session. It's very, that there's very intense modes that hold us there for so long. We have these breakthrough experiences mm-hmm. like that. But Thomas Merton said the trouble with that is, with these experiences induced by these substances, the the Dionysian cult, wine. He said the trouble is, when you seek those experiences by altering, by finding God through physiology, unless there's an underlying depth of humility and wholeness, there isn't the presence to hold it. Mm. And you get, get trapped in a surrogate, a mystical union. So this is why... Um, the normal thing is we would not use these things. We're grateful for consolations that come, but knowing they're a fleeting echo and affect yeah. for an infinite love. And to know that the, unless 
it's under skilled training mm -hmm. and this complicated thing really. it's it's really risky you know it's, uh, mm -hmm. an aberration mm -hmm. this is why I often say the alcoholic and the spirituality of the 12 steps that an alcoholic is a would-be mystic because the alcoholic discovered my problems are my problem my experience of my problems are the problem. And if I can alter my experience, my problems will go away. Mm -hmm. Great discovery. There's something mystical about that. So there are a would-be mystic that wandered off into a bad neighborhood and got mugged. Because mm -hmm. they got trapped in the addictive need to keep recreating the thing and dug themselves into a... So this is a delicate thing yes. about pleasure, detachment, altering mood, and... Uh, that. I like the saying of the Buddhist, you know, there are 10,000 worlds and I've traveled through them all. We're to be at home in the totality of ourselves mm -hmm. and wander through and not cling to or reject any of them. That freedom of spirit. Yes. Thanks, Jim. Our, our last question to close, um, and I think it builds on this one, which is um, someone wrote in about, you know, um, having to balance their marriage relationship with their pursuit of union and yes. you know they they find um a particular practices are more supportive of their marriage um the union of their marriage and and i think this is a little bit getting at like the dopamine question if if you're pursuing oneness for the dopamine or f um in a way that that would exclude union with your marriage that's probably not what God's <laughs> encouraging you to do, yeah. Yeah, so the way he put it too, I think, let's say you've been living alone, like a monk, mm -hmm. like a lay monk. And in that aloneness, your path is union with God was there. It's kind of, it was there. And let's say you meet someone, you fall in love and you get married. And then you find the marriage and the realities of married life, the complexities of it, there's just all those things that go into being married. The person can see that the the uh, that union that was there in their monk-like state mm -hmm. is getting scattered in the in the complexities and realities of the married state. So the idea would be, as the person thinks this through, is to know that the married state itself is inherently contemplative, mm -hmm. because by its very Thomas Merton said we should get down on our knees right now, and thank God we can't live the way we want to. God doesn't let us get away with it. And if you're married, you can't live the way you want to. Your spouse won't let you get away with it. <laughs> and so if you each pull each other's covers, if you're each there for each other, there's something about that. And this is why these nuptial mystics, by the way, say married love is a metaphor for God. Mm -hmm. see? And so therefore you're to see there's something about the shared sincerity of the married relationship is itself the incarnate presence of God being given and being invited to see it in the givens of the relationship, in all its edges, you keep working on it. Mm -hmm. There's another thing that's possible. Then when you go to sit alone in prayer, you would see that your relationships with the spouse were embodiments or echoes of what's coming up in the solitary silence of your prayer. You can start to see a continuum between the two. Mm. And this is true. Sometimes the spouse might not be into this at all. The spouse doesn't relate to it in that way. But as long as they're sincere and as long as they're loving, you can see a certain holiness in them. And they're sincere. And you can let them know that you see it mm -hmm. and you're grateful for them. And sometimes people who are drawn to this mystical path, they're married to someone who's also drawn to it. And then it becomes explicitly present as their marriage itself. Thank you, Jim, for that reflection and Octavian for, for that question about marriage. I, I thought that was a, a yeah, helpful that's one a good too. One. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. So we've come to the end of our listener questions and this season, this last episode and this oh, season. Let me add one last thing. I want to ask oh, yeah. one to The whole point of this is we're meant to find it where we are. Mm. So if you're married, you're meant to find this and you're as married. If you're divorced, you're meant to find it as divorced. Mm. If you're saying you're meant to find it as this. You know, if you're sick, you're meant to find it in your sickness. In your diet, you're meant to find it. And that's what really counts is that where we are is we're meant to, to find this and live by it in the context of where we're called to live our life. I think that's the thing. Yes. Really. Yeah. Anyway. No, that's a beautiful place to end on. So, 
just inviting everyone who's listening to be fully present to where they are in their own lives and knowing that God's fully present there to be found and yes. to find them, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> or end on Merton's note, the very fact you're seeking God means you've already found God. Or deeper still, God's already found you. Mm. Otherwise, you wouldn't even be seeking God. That's a nice insight you know, that, to end on. That's beautiful. Yeah. So thank you to Thomas Merton. Thank you to Guigo the second. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jim, thank you to you for, for a wonderful season. Um, I resonate with all the positive feedback that we've gotten. I've really enjoyed the season and, and learned many new things. Uh, so thank you, Jim. And thank you, Kirsten, for your presences, because so many people have made a statement by listening to our dialogue. It actually helps them access it more. So I think this is another layer of accessibility to this, so it enriches it. So gratitude to you for that. Thank you, Jim. See you next year. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.